invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word with me to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12, we'll be reading uh, verses 25 through the end of the chapter this afternoon, this evening. 1 Kings 12, picking up in verse 25. As you're finding your spots there, I'll just be encouraging you, if you're interested, a good thing you could be doing is be reading Second Chronicles uh, in preparation each week for the sermons moving forward, because I've been finding there are some very helpful clues about the sons of David in Chronicles that don't appear in Kings. And uh, so I'll be alluding to Chronicles more, I think, in the next couple of months. Um, and I can assist you in finding where in Second Chronicles you want to be, if that is of help to you. Uh, but this, this week we're looking at 1 Kings 12, beginning in verse 25. This is the word of Almighty God. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. Also he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Jeroboam, king of Judah. Therefore, the king asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. He made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel. Sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And at Bethel he installed the priests of the high places which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel, and offered sacrifices on the altar, and burned incense. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we gaze on events so long ago and worship so distant from us, nonetheless, Lord, may you shine the light of your word on our hearts and our worship, that we might bring glory to your name, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We come here to look at uh, Jeroboam, and uh, lest we 
lest we missed his first introduction a chapter or so ago, where God said, I will give you t 10 tribes after Solomon dies, and his response is, no, I'm going to take 12 tribes now, uh, lest we missed that and had an idea that Jeroboam is going to be the, the hero, the godly David-like figure to Rehoboam's fall, uh, folly and Solomon-like, or I'm, I'm sorry, Saul-like uh, figure. We're, we're, we're proven wrong here. Here we see Jeroboam's heart on full display. Jeroboam now has his ten tribes of northern Israel, and he builds himself his version of Jerusalem, which is in the mountains of Ephraim. It also is a military fortress in the same way that Jerusalem was a military fortress for David. It's not quite as grand, and obviously it didn't last as long, hence we don't know it as well. Uh, but he seeks to do that very thing. He builds himself this fortress. He builds another city, Penuel. And then his heart, his heart wavers. Israel is going to go back to the house of David. Now, why, why is he thinking this? Just recall that three times a year, God required the people to go up to the Ark of the Covenant, which now is centered in Jerusalem at the temple. Three times a year, every male older than 12 had to travel to the temple for a worship service and feast days three times a year. And Rehobo uh, sorry, Jeroboam's thought is, how long before people who are worshiping five feet away from Rehoboam and who are worshiping with all their brethren from the tribe of Judah start saying, why did we make such a big deal about them being Judah and us being everyone else when we're worshiping together at the Feast of Booths, when we're worshiping together at the Passover? Uh, how long before at these great feasts they've traveled to Jerusalem and they say, we have one God, and surely he has made his covenant with one house, the house of David. So Jeroboam's thought is fear. They're going to return because of these feast days. So in his mind, he can't separate worship from politics. And that's, I think, understandable, except that it reveals something about his religion in general. And that is that if he believes in God at all, he has a very generic view of God. And the text and the following passage is going to be very clear that generic religion will not please God. And amalgamated worship will not please God. He won't accept a man-made thing. Notice all these times where we read of Jeroboam, we read, uh, we read uh, for example, in verse 32, that they are sacrificing to the calves that he had made. At Bethel, he installed priests, which he had made. And he is offering on an altar, which he had made. And he devised all of this in his own heart. 
his religion is not what has been handed down. It's not that Rehoboam has destroyed the true religion and he is the last bastion and it needs to move location. He is creating his own religion. So if he has a view that God exists at all, it's his own generic religion. And he does not have the fear of God. This is sad when we reflect on the covenant offer that God had given him. It's sad for two reasons. One, in the very moment that God promised to make a covenant with him like he had made with David. Remember that? We read it the other week. In that very moment, God is reminding him of something. That God had made a covenant, and now he's disciplining the house of David. So that the very way in which God makes a covenant with Jeroboam is also God warning Jeroboam what will happen if he doesn't keep God's laws. He should have fear of the Lord, because look what happened to the house of David. But he doesn't have that fear of the Lord, and he doesn't trust him. And so he rejects the offer that God makes. Remember that covenant was, if you keep my law, you're going to be just like David. But he doesn't get to be just like David because he doesn't keep God's law. Now, there's probably some truth to the fact that he is concerned about the people going back to David, but imagine what kind of beautiful story uh, we might have had here had he trusted God and served and honored God all the days of his life, we probably would have had the people going back through some kind of inner uh, marriage between the families. That, that would be my guess, is that God would have brought about this amazing covenant convergence with a son of David and a daughter of Jeroboam marrying and uniting Israel once again. And yet he doesn't see anything beautiful like that as the possibility for him, it's, they're going to kill me and go back to David's house. But we need to be very cautious that uh, we, do not, we do not fall into an attitude that any religion will do. Or almost the right religion will do. That's what he does. He treats God like a dumb idol. He outwardly professes faith in Israel's God, but it is a god, gods of his own design. He takes a little bit of true religion. There's a little bit mixed in here. And then he takes a little bit of Israel's history, their history of not following the right religion, but nonetheless, Israel's history, and a little bit of right religion. He blends it together and makes something not acceptable to God. Of course, he blends those two things together with a large portion of Baal worship. Uh, the, the calves were in Baal worship quite regularly. They were seen not as Baal himself. Uh, often I think we see these statues of a cow. We think that was Baal. The, the idea was that Baal used the calf as his chariot steed, and so Baal was presumably hovering over this calf. And so Jeroboam's presumably picking up on that as well as what Aaron had done before him and saying, well, you know, here's Yahweh, right? Remember Aaron saying that? Here's Yahweh, your God. 
it probably wasn't Aaron saying this cow is your god, but rather, like the pagans, our invisible god is hovering over this cow, his mighty steed, his bull, or whatever. But that doesn't change the fact it is idolatry and a blend with Baal worship. So we, we need to be cautious of this. We need to make sure we have the right religion. Uh, we are surrounded by a lot of things that sound uh, an initially exciting. I don't know if you've had a moment of realization like, like I have every so often, where we're surrounded by so much outright pagan perversion that you'll encounter a moral person and they'll say, we need more God. Or uh, I, I've, I've come to see uh, uh, no God and the importance of prayer and things like that. But as you listen to them, it's this idea of God as essence. Some, whatever that means. God as in you. Or God in a syncretistic way. You know, all gods lead to godness in some way. Uh, we we are surrounded by a lot of things. You, you can even, for example, I, I thought this week of um, Jordan Peterson. Some of you might be familiar with who that is. He's not a believer, but he's a moral-ish man uh, who says a lot of uh, conservative and, and good things. He He's just spent a large portion of the past several years doing... Um, these major lecture series on Genesis and Exodus. But if you listen to what he's saying, there's nothing about God. It's all social, social construction, a religion that promotes a community that, that teaches us something about our community or the need thereof, right? But it, it can be packaged in a way that at first glance sounds, sounds so exciting. He's talking about Exodus! And he's influential. What's this going to result in? We need to be very clear in our minds that none of these things is true religion. And none of it pleases God. It doesn't please God more than someone who denies God altogether. And I think sometimes we try to grade on a scale. Well, at least they believe in something like God. That's surely better than being a fool who says there is no God. No, if you're not worshiping the one living and true God, you are the fool who is in essence saying there is no God. I can create my own. And we can see this with other things as well. Moralism, uh, taking the gospel but blending in moralism is not the true gospel. Universalism, social justice, uh, these are all ways of taking the gospel and blending something in until it's not actually the gospel at all. And we need to be clear ourselves about all of that. Well, the big thing with Jeroboam here is how he worships and how he gets the people to worship. And the central thing that we're going to see with this text is that God will be worshipped how he pleases or he isn't being worshipped at all. God's rejection will come upon any attempt to worship our way. I, I, I recently was reading Charles H.P. Charles, 
Um, and, and I was interested in something he said about the worship wars, the worship wars in Christianity over the past uh, 50 years. He said on the one side of the worship wars was the seeker-sensitive movement, and on the other side was the worship is for the saints. And if you just pause there, you think, well, which side is right? Well, worship really is the people of God meeting, isn't it? So the saints' side is right. But then H.P. Charles got me. It struck me to the heart. His comment was that in all of this, in all of this, sometimes we forget the object of worship, which is God. It's not about the seekers, but it's also not about the, the believers. It's about God. And if it's not about God, then it's not worship of God. I, I think it's a, a powerful point he made there, and I humbly accept the criticism. If our attempts at biblical worship aren't centered on who God is and what he desires from us, then we're worshiping someone or something other than God. I'm going to have us come back to that again next week and think a bit about the regulative principle of worship. But for this week, I do want to just consider Jeroboam's inventions of worship. What, what does he uh, bring about in our text here uh, and, and why does he bring these things about? And are they foreign to us or are they very close to us? So I think three things especially stand out that Jeroboam does that are emphasized here. First, in Jeroboam's worship, it's convenience over obedience. Convenience over obedience. And this, this you can get to that several ways with Jeroboam, but the main way is location, 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 right? The temple in Jerusalem, the people are going to go to the temple in Jerusalem, and then they're going to go back to the son of David. So we make it more convenient to go anywhere else. I wonder how long he thought before he came up with two calves. Aaron only had one calf. Uh, how, how long did it take for him to come up with two calves? It's convenient, isn't it? that he had two calves so that he could stick one way up north and one right above Jerusalem. Because that's what he does. Bethel is just over the border from where Judah's territory begins. It's as far south as you can get before you enter David's territory. And so if anyone in Jeroboam's land is thinking, well, it's not that inconvenient to go to Jerusalem, they have to go right past Jeroboam's Bethel to get there. Why drive an hour to worship when you can drive five minutes down the road? Why make that extra journey when you can just step into your backyard? It's brilliant. But at the same time, if you live way up in Dan and in the northern part of Israel, if you're above the Sea of Galilee and traveling to Bethel is, you know, I don't know, takes you a week instead of eight days. It only saves you one day to go to Bethel. 
how long before people who have just said, well, forget David, we're going to be our own kingdom, start saying, well, maybe Jeroboam doesn't really care about us that much either. And they break away. So Jeroboam has a temple up in the north, as far north as you can go. See how convenient it is. If you live in the south, you have Bethel, so you don't get dragged into Jerusalem. If you live in the north, you go to Dan, where they've been worshiping you know, idols in the name of Yahweh for hundreds of years, since the days of the judges. And now there's an official temple with an official statue. How convenient this is for everyone. And the really sad thing is, there's very little sign that Israel questioned this change. Now, when we jump over to 2 Chronicles 11, verses 13 and 14, we do see that someone questioned the change. The tribe of Levi. Almost the entire tribe of Levi. Friends, that's a happy thought, because they are the teachers of Israel. They are not only the priests, but they are the, the deacons slash Bible teachers of Israel. And they, as a body, almost unanimously say, we're not having it. And in Second Chronicles 11, we read that almost the entire tribe moved to Judah. They left their homes and they traveled to Judah for the real religion. And then there's something even more exciting. Verse 16, 2 Chronicles eleven sixteen tells us, All the others who feared the Lord in the ten tribes followed the Levites. So that means they left homes which God had given to their fathers. They left the promised inheritance that had been given to great-great-grandfather. And they moved to Judah. Because it's more important to be homeless, worshiping the one living and true God, than to have all the riches of Israel and worship a dumb idol. That's an encouraging thought, but the reality is, it doesn't sound like there were very many of them. And so what we find in 1 Kings is no mention of any of that. 1 Kings shows us the vast majority made the switch, this is convenient, and never challenged it at all. Well, is the church today any different? Convenience worship. I'm not just talking about geography on this one, am I? So, some of you drive a distance. Holly and I once drove the 45 minutes to worship, and it got old quick. Uh, in our case, there were other good churches we could have gone to, but... Um, it gets old, and convenience can be easy. But there are convenience things that go far beyond the drive. There are convenience things about the service itself and what it looks like that are more convenient, and the church today is no different. The, the second major innovation that Jeroboam has has to do with the ministry team. I couldn't figure out how else to word that, so I'm going to call it the ministry team. Uh, he, it seems, even before Levi left, I, I think, you can read it either direction, but I think it's before Levi left to go to Judah that Jeroboam made the decision, why should one tribe have all the ministry leaders 
when people might feel like they're called to ministry in all the tribes. And that's exactly what he makes possible. You can be from any tribe. Now, I'm sure there was a process. One, I, I know very, very certainly, even though it's not explicitly said, that it would have still just been men, right? Jeroboam would have, well, of course it's only men serving as priests. We're not going to have women serving as priests or, or children serving as priests, right? He, he's got his limit on what he's going to do, but he's still rejecting God's restriction, which is to one family from one tribe. Now it's any family from any tribe, and they can be a part of this. Now, notice that they, they flock to him. It seems like a lot of people are interested, and not all of them are at the two temples he set up in the name of Yahweh. A lot of them end up at the high places. And those high places were not all for the worship of Yahweh. That's how quick Israel changed. But so much of it, no doubt, was appealing because when you're in ministry or when you're leading in something, or when you have a title, you feel important, and maybe you feel more involved, or maybe worship feels more meaningful. Why travel all the way down to Jerusalem where I'm going to stand in the outer courts, and my only participation is going to be singing along when the Levitical choir leads us in song, and then letting other people do all the stuff and doze off. Maybe you're stuck standing in the outer court instead of sitting in the hot sun. Why would that be appealing when I can myself be the priest on the hill in my own backyard? That's appealing. And it feels closer to God. And the church today, of course, is no different on this. In fact, uh, I can't tell you... Uh, and this isn't just at our church, at places where I've interned. I've had conversations with people. You know, I would like worship better if I was more involved. Why aren't you more involved? Well, then be more involved. I don't see you singing particularly loud. Those people, most people who make this complaint aren't usually the most loud singers or the most energetic at reading a responsive reading or doing a confession of faith. Uh, they aren't usually the people who, uh, well, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Or, or maybe they are, but it's about their kids. My kids want to go to this other church. Why? Because they like it better. They, they like it better. Maybe if they were part of the praise team, they would want to be a part of this church more. They'd feel more involved. But every conversation I've had about that has been about kids who don't know how to play an instrument. Every time. Uh, but that's not the point. The, the point is, see, we're not any different. If I were to stand up today and say, hey, we're going to create new positions to lead things in worship, we're going to have Children's Preaching Sunday, which I was nauseated to find out a few years ago actually happens in a lot of churches. I learned about this from Focus on the Family, which is pretty conservative, but apparently... Some of their churches do this too. Children, youth ministry week, and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna have we're gonna have Caleb get up and preach a sermon this week. 
That would probably be a pretty good sermon, actually, in our church, if I asked Caleb to preach a sermon for us. But, but he probably is more biblically minded than to say yes to that, uh, <laughs> ironically. <clears throat> this, this kind of thing is very popular. Jeroboam's innovative, and he's innovative in a very modern way. And then the third thing, and I didn't know how to phrase this, but Jeroboam's third area of innovation is um, special stuff. I'm going to phrase it like that. I, the only other way I could think of to phrase it is holiday. But I don't want you to think I'm attacking Christmas and Easter. Or not solely attacking Christmas and Easter. I'm not attacking those things. Uh, but but he invents a holiday. Why? Well, because there are these feasts in Jerusalem, and to correspond with that one, because if you just say, hey, we're not going to Jerusalem anymore, and every Sunday, or sorry, Sabbath day, Saturday, we're going to do incense at the altar of these cows, um, and just leave it at that, people are going to say, but you know, my favorite part of the of the year was when we traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover. My, my favorite memories from childhood, my nostalgia, was when we built the tent of booths, right? That Then you're going to run into problems. So you have to have the flash, the special thing in there as well. And so he creates something. I even like the way that the Holy Spirit presents this to us. Like the feast that was in Judah, verse 32. It's not the feast that's in Judah. It's not the feast that was in Judah because it doesn't follow the law of God. God told them exactly how to keep the feast. And his feast is of his own heart's invention. But, uh, you know, the people seem okay with this. And one of the things that they perhaps are okay with is now instead of three times a year traveling a long way, you only have one special thing a year and then you can feel like you've been really religious. One thing a year, and you've fulfilled what is needed for your spiritual life. And yet this, this can detract from the weekly Sabbath observance. We don't see anything about them uh, following with what the Levites had been doing every Sabbath. The Levites in each community would teach God's law. But now those teachers have laughed. And Jeroboam doesn't replace them in the community with more Bible teachers. Instead, it's this one holiday and a bunch of random priests. It also distracts from the cross. Now, you, you say this is Old Testament, they didn't have the cross, but the Passover pointed to the cross. The Feast of Booths pointed to the Incarnation. And stripping those away and replacing them with this generic Feast of Jeroboam's means that the Christocentric part of religion is now gone, and all that's left is that outward, shallow uh, shell. But, well, again, the church today, is it any different? And I don't say that simply, I don't say that to bash Easter and Christmas observance, although it should challenge how we think 
and practice those things. But today I think the church in many ways, not just with holiday observance, is drawn to uh, special things. If we're having a special service, we'll have a better attendance. If we're having a, a special missionary night, we'll have more people in this room than we can fit in this room. But we, the next Sunday, we won't have those same people. We won't have those same people on a prayer meeting night. See, the special thing is what we like. The, the ordinary means of grace fall on the wayside. Well, I'm going to have a stop there and come back Come back next week to think about worship God's way a bit. Kind of pause and have a, a bit of a tangent here about God's rule for worship. I think is appropriate for us. Um, but I want to leave you with this challenge as we think about convenience over obedience and ministry team and special things. As we think about these three areas of innovation... These areas of innovation, uh, I, I want to leave us challenged as we prepare to come back next week, challenging us to pray for the church. Because the things Jeroboam does sounds exactly like the church in America. I hope it doesn't sound like Christ Church or Covenant Church. I don't believe it does. But it sounds exactly like the church in America. And so we need to pray for the church around us, even for other gospel-believing churches that can still subtly be drawn to some of these things. And I also want to leave you with this comment. Uh, someone once said, and I had the foresight to write it down, someone once said, a church that follows the regulative principle may not be cool or convenient, but it is worth the drive. That's about the best summary you can give to this chapter of Scripture. A church that follows God's way of worship may not be cool, it may not be convenient, but it is worth the drive. Think of those saints you'll meet in heaven one day who left all they had and moved to Jerusalem for worship. Let's pray.